Philippians 2, verses 1 through 11. Philippians 2, 1 through 11. So, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among you, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by coming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Let's pray. Uh, Father, I pray that you would uh, take these words, help us see this amazing truth that you've laid out, that as you desire unity in the church body and you point to the incarnation of Christ to help us get there, the birth of Christ. God, I pray that you would... uh, cut into our hearts and receive what Your Word wants to do in our lives. pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Some of you might have uh, thought, man, I'm going to walk out of church if this is what he's going to entitle his sermon. How selfish. How can Christmas help you bring joy to your pastors? Uh, I'm sure when you uh, were kind of coming into this holiday season, that was the first thing on your mind, thinking, how can I bring joy to Scott and Dave and Sam? And uh, you probably are curious to know why I would entitle a sermon like this. But as we'll see in the text, the shocking point in the text gives us amazing insight into God's own heart and helps us discover another meaning of Christmas or another thing we can learn and think about as uh, we enter a season like this. Let me ask you a question. What makes you most uneasy in your heart? What kind of puts that sick, not-like feeling in your heart that 
just causes you to feel anxiety. Well, I don't know what you're thinking about, but I know I can put my finger on one of the things that brings that feeling into your life. God created you and He created me as relational people. And where relationships have tension, you have anxiety and this feeling of uneasiness that hurts like no other. When there's relational anxiety, we feel the depth of our sin more than any other time. And that's, that's not by random chance it's that way. God Himself is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. God Eternal has always been a family. And when He creates us in His image, He creates us to have relationship with Him and with each other. And right away, right at the beginning, when Adam and Eve sinned, there was broken relationship with God and there was broken relationship with man immediately. Right after Adam and Eve sinned, Adam looks to his wife as God comes to him as the head of his family and he blames her. Now imagine this beautiful marriage relationship, perfect communion together. Imagine the first zing of your beloved back at you, blaming you. What would that have felt like to be Eve and be accused of her husband? And right away, relational tension, horizontally, vertically, Cain kills Abel. And so we live in a fallen world. And we live with, you know, what's the worst tension? Is it not family tension within your own home? I don't have teenagers yet. There's, there's family tension with little children. I can imagine days in the future where I'm not sleeping real well at night as there's tension. We've all felt this before. And what does Christmas have to do with a pastor's joy and with unity of relationship? That's kind of the question I want us to consider. And I can just tell you from experience as a pastor, I love my job. I got the best job of the wor- in the world. My main job is to pray for you and to tell you good news. That's an awesome job. And the news I have to tell you is more important than any other news. That might make me sound arrogant. It's just true. Every other news reporter is reporting news that the next day 
You know, if it's not up to date, it's worthless. What's last week's news good for? I love my job, but the hardest part of my job is what? Tension. Relational tension in the body. And it's not by chance that it's that way. It was that way with Paul. It was the very prayer of Christ Himself. And only through the good news of Christmas can this be addressed at all. Can we have any hope as a church body or a family? So if you have your Bibles, turn to Philippians 2. And I'm going to show you the main charge in this passage. And then we'll look at how this main charge is supported. You know, this is a really popular text. If you had asked me a month ago, what's Philippians 2 about? I'd say the incarnation of Christ. The humility of Christ. You know, what's, what's your Bible say in the heading? You know, the humility of Christ or something like that. And I was shocked in my preaching class I just took. We had to learn how to diagram a text where you kind of put your text out on paper and you look at what the main ber- verb is and how all the other words serve the main drive. And our professor says, what's the main, in verses 1-11 through 11 of Philippians 2, what's this text about? What's the main driving point in your sermon? Because an expositor, that's what I attempt to be, to get the meaning of God's Word out of the text and give it to you. What I don't want to do is apply my own meaning into it. I want to draw it out. So in diagramming, it helps us figure out what is Paul saying. Well, look at what he says in verse 1. So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, now here's the main charge of the text, complete my joy. Everything else through verse 11 is serving to that statement. When he talks about the humility and the incarnation of Christ, he's trying to convince them to serve his own joy. Complete my joy. Doesn't that sound selfish? Here's my charge, church. Complete my joy. And it's, I mean, I was shocked as I saw this diagram. I was like, yeah, that's true. All these other verses are arguments serving this point. And so I started thinking, so is this just one odd chapter in the Bible? And I began to see just this theme as I was looking at this this week from Christ and in Paul's other letters. So let me just share a few of them from Christ so that you feel that this is not some odd statement that Paul says, 
but it's a common statement. It's a statement that I even experience as a pastor. And so if you have your Bibles, I want to show you first Christ. Uh, turn to John 17. I'm going to show you two passages from John. John 17 is Jesus' high priestly prayer right before He ascends or goes to the cross and dies and then leaves the disciples. The topic is He's getting ready to leave and Christ leaves them and us with a gift. And that gift is His prayer for us. You can always pick up your Bible and read John 17 and know how Jesus Himself prayed for you. It's amazing. And look at verse 11. Jesus says in this prayer, I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name. What that means is keep them in your authority, in your teaching. He says, keep them in your name, which you have given me, and that they may be one, even as we are one. And so he has this prayer that these disciples would be kept in the authority of God, which has been given to Christ. And then he prays for unity of the body. That they may be one as we are one. That's unity. While I was with them, I kept them in Your name which You have given Me. I guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction that the Scripture might be fulfilled. But now I am coming to You, and these things I speak in the world that they may have My joy fulfilled in themselves. So He prays for our unity that we be kept in His authority so that His joy may be fulfilled in yourself. So here you have Jesus praying. So this isn't a pastor saying, make my joy complete. He's praying you experience the completeness of joy through unity. And then look at verse 20 of John 17. He says, I do not ask for these only, but for those who will believe in Me through their Word. So He's not just praying for the disciples. He's praying for you and He's praying for me. And then what does He say in verse 21? That they may be all one just as You, Father, are in Me and I in You, that they may also be in us so that the world may believe that You have sent Me. The glory that You have given Me, I have given to them that they might be one as even we are one. I in them and You in Me that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that You sent Me and loved them even as You loved Me. So as the church is unified, Jesus prays that the world looks at it and says, God loved them exactly the same way He loved the Son. 
That is the most amazing concept. Jesus said our unity, He prayed for our unity, that that would put on display God's love for us. Well, how is God's love for us? The same as it is for His own Son. Through Christ, we can have unity back with God and joy can be complete. Just turn a few chapters back to John 15. This is the famous chapter of the vine and the branches. And one of the key statements in there is in John 15.5, Jesus said, I am the vine and you are the branches. Whoever abides in Me and I in him, there you have unity, he it is that bears much fruit, for apart from Me you can do nothing. What hope does a non-believer have? According to Jesus, if you don't abide in the vine, which is Him, you can do nothing. Your whole life will be a waste without unity in the vine. And then a few verses later in verse 9, He says, As the Father has loved Me, so I have loved you. Abide in My love. If you keep My commandments, you'll abide in My love. Just as I have kept My Father's commandments and abide in His love, these things I have spoken to you. Why? That My joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. This is My commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. So here again we have this statement where His joy may be in you and that your joy may be full through brotherly love and unity, abiding in Christ and in each other in love. So you, so you start seeing a little bit of, so what's the deal here with the fullness of joy, unity in the body, And then Paul, it's just pervasive all throughout his letters. Here's Philippians 4.1. I'm just going to go through a couple of texts here of, with Paul. Philippians 4, uh, starting in verse 1. Paul is writing to this church. The, the theme of this letter is joy. He says, therefore, my brothers, whom I love, not brothers, this is family language, whom I love and long for, what does he say? My joy and crown. So in Philippians 2, he's saying, make my joy complete. And then he calls them his joy. He wants to come to this church and have his joy complete. This is His crown. This is where the pastor experiences fullness of joy. He says, My joy and crown stand firm in the Lord, my beloved. 
And then what does he say? I entreat Eudia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. He's saying, you're supposed to be my joyous crown and there's two sweet sisters in the Lord that have both fought for the Gospel that are disagreeing. And he's saying, give your pastor some joy. Bring them together in unity. So Christ said, when my body is unified, my joy is complete. And you can experience my joy in family unity. And then what's the very job description of a pastor? What does Paul have in his mind? It makes sense why he speaks like this. In Ephesians 4, he says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling which you have been called. Well, what does that look like? With all humility, gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. It's all unity language. All through Ephesians 4. And then you get to verse 11 and you get the job description of the apostles and prophets and pastors and shepherds and teachers and evangelists. Verse 11 says, He gave apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers. Why? To equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain the unity of faith. For Paul, it's really simple. I'm a pastor. Why? To unify the body. To help Christians become mature and to bear with each other in patience, in humility, forgiving each other, living with one mind, with one spirit. And he's begging churches, let my joy be complete. Quit being like babes in Christ. Grow up into unity. And then he argues five points. And that's the rest of the sermon. The first point is verse 1. I must consider the benefits of the relationship with Christ. This is what Paul is having them consider. Look at verse 1. Is there any encouragement in Christ? Any comfort from love? Any participation in the Spirit? Any affection and sympathy? This is all relational language. He's saying, in Christ, don't you experience encouragement, comfort, love, participation in the Spirit, affection, and sympathy? Paul says, if that's true, then make my joy complete. You can't say, well, we're not going to be unified. We've never experienced relational love and compassion and encouragement. He's saying, if there is, he's saying, obviously there is, then make my joy complete. Well, what would that look like? That's number two in your notes. 
that we must strive to have unity of mind in Christ. Look at what he says. By being, so he begins to unpack what this looks like, by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord, and of one mind. Now just think about this for a minute. How many of you want to say, yeah, right? How many people come to church here at Sovereign Grace? How many opinions do we have? How many different experiences do we have? How many different political parties do we have represented here? How many different music preferences do we have here? And Paul, you want to tell us, be of the same mind, same love, full accord of one mind? How will that ever, ever work? That unity sounds good, but does it not seem impossible? I mean, really, we hear these verses and we say, oh yeah, this sounds good. But is, is he just saying nice things? Or does he really think that a church can be unified like this. Being of the same mind, the same love, full accord, one mind. How, can that, how could that ever be? Well, it gets unpacked a little bit in verse 3. It brings up the third thing that we must strive to be selflessly humble in our evaluations of others. Look at what he says. Here's, here's how you, we can begin to imagine this type of unity. He says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Now imagine, what if everyone in this room got rid of selfish ambition and conceit and counted other people as more significant than ourselves. What would that look like? You see, we don't even know we're doing it. We use people to build ourselves up. You know, we'll, do, we'll serve a little bit and we're looking for someone to notice. Did you see I did this? Come on. Give me meaning. I, I mean, everyone needs to be appreciated a little bit. And then someone gives it to us. Okay, that builds me up a little bit. Fulfills some of my ambition. When we do this, we don't even think about it. You know, I could clean the kitchen. And if Laura didn't notice in the first couple of minutes, man, the kitchen looks clean, doesn't it? Well, who am I doing that for? Am I doing that out of love or to gain to use my wife to raise up myself. What would it be like to quit using people to gain compliments, to gain our identity? But to actually count people as more important than ourselves. That's the most unnatural thing in the world. Who's the most important person? I am! <laughs> right? That's natural. But to look around 
and begin to believe life doesn't revolve around me. You see, truth people really struggle here. It does say count them. We might be able to argue that we are more important and that they're dogs. But to count them more important is not to run through the logic of why we are more important, but to have the disposition of it's not about me. It's about them. And then look at what he says in verse 4, which brings up your fourth argument there, that we must seek to consider others' interests. You see, if we're not worried about selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility we count others more significant than ourselves, then it might look like this. Let each of you not look only to his own interests, but also the interest of others. The most natural thing in the world is to be concerned with your own interest. That, that's how he's arguing here. Don't only look to your own interest. That comes completely natural. But in Christ, let this become natural. What do they want? What would they like? What are their interests? What do they have to say? What's going on in their life? I wonder what they would prefer. You see, we just totally give up on ever being a part of a body that can be like this. We just say, we gotta wait till heaven. Well, Paul wasn't waiting. He was crying and he was pleading. And he wants his joy complete now. He wants the fullness of maturity in the body which shows itself in Christian love for each other that isn't selfish, that isn't conceited, that considers others as more important than themselves. And then his fifth argument is an illustration. No one remembers the points of a sermon. They always remember the illustration, right? That's why if you're asked what Philippians 1-11 through is, all about, you're going to remember the illustration. Everyone remembers the illustration. He's argued from logic here. And he's pleaded with people. He's described what humility is. But now, he gives what I call the gasoline to make this possible. Because everything I just said thus far that Paul has just said, that he's called us to, I think it's fair to say, what hope is there that this ever happens? That unity can begin to come like this. In this illustration, say it's almost like, here's the car you need to drive. Yeah, Paul, it's empty on gas. Well, he put some gas in in verse 1. Is there any encouragement in Christ? So he put a little gas in. Now he's going to fill the tank up. Look at what he says in verse 5. He says, Have this mind among yourselves, 
which is yours in Jesus Christ. I'm just here to say gasoline is available to make the car of selfless humility that promotes unity. We have a good description of what it would look like. And now here's the motivation. Which is yours in Christ Jesus, though He was in the form of God, He's saying, though He is God. What does it mean to be in the form of God? That word means, it means to be God. The fullness of who He is did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Now here's what He is not saying. I never understood this. So Jesus is God and He can't imagine being God? He doesn't have the brain capacity to grasp it? That is not what he's saying. What he's saying is, as though he's in the form of God, he did not all the rights God has, all the glory, all the honor that God has full rights to, which is all of them. Jesus did not cling to when he came down here. He didn't grasp onto it and say, I'm taking all my rights and all my glory and I'm going to demand that I get it all. He didn't count equality with God. Everything He deserves to be grasped, He let go of it and came down here. Did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied Himself. Hold that thought in your mind. Emptied Himself by taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men. For God to become a man is described as Him emptying Himself. That doesn't mean He ceases to be God. It means He didn't cling to all the rights He has and demand it, but rather, what does it say? He came as a servant. What does a servant do? The servant thinks about other people. The servant serves his master. His master's agenda is what matters. The people he's serving is who matters. And so it says, taking the form of a servant and being found in human form, though he's in the form of God, he humbled himself by becoming obedient. So let's just stop here. To be humbled is to be submissive. To be obedient is to be submissive. In the heart of man, we don't want to submit to anyone. This is the pride of America. I can make my own life. I can pull myself up by my own bootstraps. No one's telling me what to do. I control my own destiny. That's a lie. He humbled Himself, became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. He didn't just become obedient 
to become a man. He became obedient to become a man to go suffer like no man has ever suffered before. And to take on sins and punishment for sins that He never did. Even to the point of death on a cross. You want to know how empty Jesus got? When Jesus was put on the cross, His friends left Him. Everyone is scattered. Peter denies Him. Our sins are put on Jesus. Maybe you feel alone or lonely sometimes. You're never alone. You've never been alone a day in your life. God has always been with you. Even when we think there's nobody, there's people who care for us. When Jesus was on the cross and your sins and my sins were put on Him and He's naked and He's bleeding and He's being mocked, the Father forsakes the Son. When our sins are on Jesus, God mounts up with wrath and unleashes it on Christ. That's empty. Naked. Beaten. Spit upon. And what's the illustration? He's God. He has all rights. Paul's argument is, you think you're important? You think you deserve something? You're not going to count other people's important when Jesus in the form of God became man? Became obedient to death, even death on a cross? I mean, He's pulling out all... You can't get any better motivation than this. He says, this mind is ours in Christ. How are you going to love your spouse when they're unlovable and everything inside you just makes you want to drive me crazy? It's not like that very much with Laura. Really. With the person at work, with your children. What are you going to do? Well, if you go to Christmas that talks about God becoming a man and dying, becoming a servant, your gas tank starts to fill up and you can deny yourself and serve others and bring unity and count others more important than yourself. It's ours in Christ. But as soon as you start playing this game, did you see what you see how much I've done and I'm not getting appreciated? Do you see what they keep doing this? How many times are they gonna wrong me? How many you start playing that game? You have no power to deny yourself and serve and love somebody else. So Paul is asking that his joy be made complete, be unified, church at Philippi. Let be my crown. In 2 Corinthians 8-9, you don't need to turn there. 
Here's what Paul says. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though He was rich, yet for your sake became poor, so that by His poverty you might become rich. He emptied Himself. Why did Jesus die? One of the reasons is 2 Corinthians 5.13. Paul says, "For if we're beside ourselves, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ controls us. People are saying, Paul, how can you live this life like this? Well, the love of Christ controls me. I have a mind given to me in Christ. Because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died, and He died for all. Why? So that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for Him for who their sake died and was raised. One of the things Jesus died for is so that your selfishness can begin to be stomped out. That you can begin to quit living for yourself. You're saved from self. From selfishness. You're saved from your sins and from a life that is so me-central me that you're, you'll be destroyed in living for yourself. just helps us get outside ourselves. Jesus says, how, did, how does Jesus put it in His words? He who finds his life will lose it. You want to go around protecting your life? Protecting your interests? Counting yourself most important? He who finds his life will lose it. He who loses his life will find it. You want joy complete? You need to die to yourself. How are you going to do that? You're going to look at the God who died for you and gives you His Spirit to do it. When Paul speaks of Christian love in 1 Corinthians 13, when he says love is patient, love is kind, it does not envy, it does not boast, it's not arrogant, rude, doesn't insist on its own way, is not irritable, resentful, doesn't rejoice in wrongdoing, rejoices with the truth, love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. There's 16 things he that describe what love does there. And seven out of the 16 are things like this. Patient, is not irritable, resentful, bears all things, endures all things, never ends. It's a picture of like a punching bag. You wrong me, you wrong me, you wrong me, you wrong me, you wrong me. Love never ends. It endures all things. It bears all things. It's patient. And if we're ever going to have unity, we need to be people that aren't easily offended in claiming our rights with each other, but are ready to bear with each other's weaknesses. And he just says this all throughout Romans 15.1, we who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. A few verses later, he says, May the God of endurance and encouragement 
grant you to live in such harmony with one another, in one accord in Jesus Christ. Ephesians 4.2, with all humility and gentleness, patience, bearing with one another in love. God always exalts the humble. How did these verses end? Look at verse 9. Because Christ emptied Himself, became humble, became a servant, therefore God has highly exalted Him and bestowed on Him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. When the ultimate demonstration of humility is on display, the ultimate exaltation follows. God does not use the proud. He uses the humble. Who does God save? God doesn't save the people who are good enough. He saves the people who can fall to their knees metaphorically, give up and say, I'm a sinner and I have no hope except in Christ. That person, God doesn't just wipe their sins away, but He makes them. He adopts them. Brings them into His family. Those who are enemies, He reconciles to Himself. And He gives them the mind of Christ so that in their relationships, unity can start to be formed. I want to finish by just reading Matthew's version. Four verses of the Christmas story and show you the amazement of God's plan. The, the amazing aspects of God's grace in sending His Son. Matthew 1.18 Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When His mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and willing to put her, unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he cons considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife. For that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She'll bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus, for he'll save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. And then he quotes Isaiah 7.14. 750 years before this, Isaiah said, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Let me tell you why this is amazing. In the Old Testament, we are told that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness for sins. There's only one way sins can be forgiven and we can be in relationship with God. How? Shedding of blood. Well, here's the problem. The Old Testament also says in Isaiah 43.11, Isaiah says, I am the Lord, besides me, there is no Savior. So we have a dilemma. 
Only God can save. There is no salvation outside God. God can't die. God can't die. The only way sins are going to be taken care of is the shedding of blood. Well, the Holy Spirit conceived God in Mary's womb so that God can die. We need a man who can die because death has to happen for sins to be taken away. But we need God to be the Savior. And in the Christmas story, we're told that He's to be named Jesus for He'll save His people from their sins. And He shall be called Emmanuel, God with us. We can have unity because God sent His Son to become a man to die for sinners so that God could save us. And anyone here who is clinging to that as their only hope will be saved. If you're here today and you're saying, I know that I cannot stand before a holy God without the God-man dying for me. Jesus Christ. If you reject Him, there is no forgiveness for sins. So I'll plead with you like I do every Sunday. What hope do you have outside of God? Apart from Me, you can do nothing, Christ said. You need Christ. Father, I pray that this Christmas as we hear the carols and we see the nativity scenes, that we would be reminded that this emptiness we feel through broken relationships in our sin can be taken care of in Christ. Lord, I pray that we would communion with You. At any moment, we can commune with You and talk to You and trust in You and read Your Word. And so often, Lord, we go to other things that will not satisfy. Lord, I pray that You would help us feel our emptiness so that we'd be like children clinging to You as our only hope that our faith would be childlike. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.